This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky and I magazine. My name is Kev Lochin and I'm joined today by the familiar voices of news editor Elizabeth Pearson. Hi. And editorial assistant Ian Todd. Hello. Now guys, I just want to start off by throwing you a curveball. If you could name a moon after any character from literature, what would it be? <laughs> I don't know. And besides, all of the names have been taken by moons already. All the names. All, all of the names. names in all of the names have been taken. Yes. Right. Okay. We'll leave that as you have. You can't think of any literature at all right now. <laughs> um, you guys doing? <laughs> but actually, I am going to say whenever I think of the moon, I always think of um, the uh, Tintin story where where he flies to the moon. Um, so yeah. My, my, you should call one Tintin. Yes, no, it's, it's snowy. Call it snowy. Call it snowy or Tintin, Tintin. and snowy. Okay. Yes. We'll, we'll go with those. Um, exciting month. Yeah, pretty much. We managed to get to uh, the International Astronomy Show uh, this month. We went up there um, a couple of weeks back, talked to some readers. I spent far too much money on shiny space rocks. Um, <laughs> Excellent. So it's it a good weekend. Yeah, and exciting month in space news as well. Yeah. Lots of things happening. Rosetta softly crashing into <laughs> its uh, comet, a planned impact. Yes. Whereas... Got it the, right this time. <laughs> yes, whereas the other one we want to talk about is... ExoMars, well, Schiaparelli, yeah. specifically. Quite so. That one didn't go so well. No. 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 Um, so, the lander, well, the orbiter, inserted itself into Martian orbit happily. Yes, the trace gas orbiter, otherwise known as TGO, Absolutely fine. Did everything it was supposed to. They're very keen at ESA to let everybody know that that was exactly what was supposed to happen. But. Yes. <laughs> the yeah. rover, it detached successfully. They detached um, it separately. It wasn't a rover. Sorry, a yes, lander. you're right. It's a lander. Important. Very. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know any wheels. I think it's like an entry, descent, and landing module. Uh, the like EDM, that. yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, the purpose of 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 the lander really was it, it wasn't. I think it only had enough batteries to last for about four Martian days or something like that. They at said least. somewhere between four and twelve, which right. is quite a big <laughs> gap. But they they weren't one hundred percent sure how well it was going to do. Um, and I think although it was going to be carrying out some science, um, its its main objective was um, basically as a as a test, as a as a preparation for ExoMars twenty twenty, mm. um, which which will land a rover. Um, so yeah, it was basically just to kind of prove that uh, ESA and Roscosmos could, um, or sorry, Roscosmos could uh, land. Um, well, w- what might potentially be a, a rover on on Mars, um, which I suppose you didn't know, quite work out. It hasn't really no. quite worked out. So what went wrong? Um, so it seems that for the first couple of minutes, everything went fine. Um, the the lander got to the atmosphere, went through the first couple of layers, slowed down, did everything it was supposed to. The parachute deployed, um, and that 
deployed exactly as it was supposed to. Unfortunately, the parachute, because the atmosphere around Mars is so thin, that could only slow it down to, I think it was about 200 kilometers per hour. Um, and then a couple of kilometers above the surface, what was supposed to happen was retro rockets or thrusters on the bottom were supposed to, to kind of kick in and slowly guide it towards the surface. Is this similar to the Curiosity Sky Crane? Yeah, it's Sorry. exactly the same principle. Something, um, at the current time, they don't know what that something is, but something went wrong. And the thrusters, they were supposed to be going for about 50 seconds. They cut out after, like, two. Oh. Um, which meant that rather than being carefully guided down to the surface, it dropped between two and four kilometers, um, impacting the surface at about 300 kilometers per hour. So it gained of, speed. Yeah, it gained speed because it was in free fall. So did the parachute drop before the thrusters? Yes. So the, the parachute detached again, just like it was supposed to do. Um, and that was all fine. So that bit is of it. It's just for some reason the thrusters cut out. And that's what they're going to spend the next however long it takes trying to work out why that happened. Um, also, because the thrust is cut out, it means that the fuel tanks were full when it impacted. Right. Which means that there was probably quite a spectacular explosion when it actually hit because they would have ignited. Wow. So, yes. It's one of these stories that kind of each day you look at it, there seems to be something different. I think like the initial, one of the initial things they were saying was that the the heat shield... Um, fell off or something like that, and that, oh, that didn't protect that it. And then I read today that, that that the parachute actually jettisoned too early. Mm. But it's potentially one of these things that even by the time this podcast comes out, there'll be a, a completely different yeah, story because they're still kind of gathering data. Yeah, they, about they it. got um, they they considered the the test a success in adverted commas because they got all of the engineering data. So the EDM was transmitting back to Earth as it was going through its descent. So they have all of that information, which should. Um, in time, tell them exactly what happened and exactly what went wrong. Um, which for when you, that's why you run tests because sometimes tests go well, sometimes they don't go so well, and um, it, it's it's just making sure you've got that information so you can work out what went wrong so it doesn't happen next time when you've got the big expensive rover. <laughs> also, interestingly, um, we got some images from the uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter in the last few days that mm. appear appear to show anyway. Um, uh, the parachute and the lander itself. Essentially, um, ESA released a comparison of a patch of Mars um, taken, I think, maybe six months apart. And obviously, two new dots have appeared, one of which is potentially the parachute and one of which is potentially the lander. Mm. So did the lander bounce? What did um, it do a feel Bits like? of it probably did. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, I think that they're kind of analysing the... There's a, as you said, with the, the MRO, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, there's a sort of black... Splat, <laughs> and they're going to be looking at that and trying to work out exactly kind of what happened when it impacted. It's always hallmarks of um, Beagle, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, Mars Express lander that well land that one did land. Yes, but didn't unfurl. But it spent years looking for that one. Yeah. Yeah. Went went wrong at the final hurdle. I think that one, was that found by um, MRO as it well. It was, was yeah, yeah, same one last year I think but you're right that one um, it, it, it touched down but it didn't unfurl its solar panels correctly if I remember it was, correctly I think it was the last one which they had very cleverly put the um, trans transmission antenna on the final 
petal, I think they called it. Um, and that's now on one of the list of things to check um, is does the thing need to deploy fully in order to get the transmission? And if the answer to that is yes, then it's not a very good space probe. Ah. <laughs> it's one of ESA's checklists. Uh, Beagle 2 was obviously one of the first things that sprung to our mind because it was a it was a kind of UK-led mission. But I, I was also looking at kind of other failed Mars uh, missions. And one of the ones that really caught my attention was Phobos 1, which is the USSR, <laughs> yep. space probe in 1988. And apparently um, it was supposed to be an unmanned spacecraft that was going to um, explore Mars, basically. When you say it was supposed to be an unmanned, does that mean someone climbed into it at the last moment? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, let me correct myself. It was an unmanned spacecraft that was supposed to uh, be uh, exploring Mars, but apparently um, a, a technician who was sending up a command to it left out a hyphen. Right. <laughs> and all the commands were supposed to be proofread by computers, but the computer wasn't working. I, th I think the, the technician knew that the computer wasn't working, but sent up the command anyway. And mm. this com the command, the, the spacecraft read it as, oh, that's the end of the mission, and, and just shut off everything. And wow. I was lost. So one, yeah. one hyphen. Yeah. There's, there's another one that, that quite famously something like that happened, which was the, the Mars Climate Orbiter back in 1999. Um, and I've heard various conflicting things about this, but I actually looked up what happened with this one, um, which they sent a command to it, and it was supposed to change its orbit. Unfortunately, it changed its orbit um, to be about a hundred miles, I think it was, too low in the atmosphere and it burned up. And the reason that that happened was because someone on some piece of software had put it in imperial units rather than in metric units. <laughs> and so it crashed because of a round... Uh, 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 Conversion error, basically. Oh. And presumably this is another one of things on the spacecraft design checklist, yes. along with where is my transmission yes. antenna. It was it was supposed to be in um there was there was some number that was supposed to be in Newton seconds, um, and instead it was done in pound seconds because that's what the company did. And even though it was said on the specifications it should be in, in Newton seconds, it just didn't happen and nobody checked. And um, the thing that, that I think's really weird is like you said with that guy the with the Russians on Phobos. Two people noticed that something wasn't right. They looked at the numbers and said, guys, I don't think this is right, but they just did it anyway. Yeah. And it's... Is it kind of like a, a faith, in, too much faith in the, in, yeah. in the computers themselves? How, how long was your list, Ian? You said you were looking at uh, failed Mars missions. Because um, there is something of a Mars curse I've heard bandied about there before. Is, yeah. Yeah, there were there were a few other ones that I kind of noted. I mean, I think on the ESA website anyway, it said that like over forty missions have attempted to land on Mars since nineteen sixty. Um, but yeah, there, there were a few. There was like the the Mars two was another USSR one in nineteen seventy one. Mm. It was kind of the same thing. Like the orbiter arrived safely, um, but the 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 lander, like the landing system, failed and it, and yeah. it got lost. I think it is worth saying that that a lot of the ones that failed, it was during you know the height of the space race, and people were just like, well, just just Get keep it up if, there. if you send off twenty, one of them will make it through. Um, yeah, but that's a valid point in itself. It is yeah. a numbers game, not just on those missions, but. Presumably, the preponderance of human missions to other planets have been to Mars. Yeah. So it is always going to be something of a curse. Yes. Next will be the curse of Venus or asteroids or comets or whatever it is they decide to do. Where would you like reason. there to be the next curse of? Where would you like to to explore next? I, I would like to go see Venus. I'd like to get a bit more up close and personal with Venus, but obviously there's there's some problems with landing 
on Venus in the 90 times atmospheric pressure and, you know, sulfuric acid um, <laughs> rain and... It just generally being a bit, bit, a bit warm. Um, can't remember exactly how hot it is, but it's it's. I think what was it? We, enough to melt lead, I think. Searing hellscape is generally the kind yeah, of the way you describe yeah. Venus. But it's an interesting planet, and it is you know there's all that evidence coming out that maybe it was once much more habitable, and you know that it's the Earth that could have been. Um, and I think that'd be really interesting to go and look at. Well, I used to think that in the past, back in the days when. Um, Mars had canals, mm. that Venus was a lush, verdant, kind of um, lost valley of dinosaurs kind of yeah, place. Yeah, it was, it was cloudy because it had weather. Like, if you looked at the Earth, it would look cloudy, and Venus looked cloudy. So, obviously, there's, there's verdant rainforests on it, right? <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Ian? Um, I'm not really sure. I, I, I think, like, as a kid, I've, I've always loved uh, uh, Jupiter because it's kind of so iconic and so recognizable. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm really interested in the, in the Juno mission, and uh, yeah, I, I think perhaps, um, perhaps that would be an interesting planet to kind of next uh, focus our attentions upon. I think you're going to get uh, some answers much sooner than Nezzy is. Yeah. <laughs> we got what was it? You got. Juno and Juice. Juice and there's even uh, a Europa mission, which is kind of, yes, the the next one that NASA is going to start thinking about. Why is it called Europa Cooper? Because that reminds me of a yacht. Um, I, I think that's that, that's the idea. Is it, it's kind of it's so much in the sort of planning in this blue sky thinking um, phase. To, to use some business speak, um, please don't. <laughs> that there. Uh, it, it, it's just, it'll probably have a much fancier name later on. It's just that's what they're calling it at the moment. Incidentally, our dear listeners, you can read more about uh, missions to Europa in the November issue, which is on sale now. Right, we should probably uh, move on. Um, so a bit later on, we're going to hear from the Sky Night TV show's Pete Lawrence and also Ian. You're going to be interviewing aeronautics engineer Dr. Christine Darden, who worked as a human computer at NASA in the 1960s, right? Yes, uh, it was a, a group of uh, engineers, um, either all or mostly women, who es- essentially did the kind of um, calculations that enabled America to pursue its space race uh, ambitions. Um, so, yeah, uh, Dr. Christine Darden, she was um, she was a, a human computer in the 1960s, and I um, yeah I, I spoke to her about her, her time in NASA. Awesome. We'll get on to that in a little bit. But right now... Um, I've got three more questions for you in News Bingo. Yay. So, News Bingo. We should have a jingle for News Bingo. (laughs) You going to try one now? (laughs) (laughs) News Bingo. (laughs) I'll stay again. (laughs) So, News Bingo is where I read you out three questions based on the latest space news stories, and you have to guess what the big news story is I'm talking about. Um, now, this month, there are actually... It's three questions, but there's also three bonus questions, so okay. six points up for grabs. So you know there's bonus questions this time. There's definitely bonus questions. Um, you all have pads in front of you, so you can write your answers down. So let's go on with it. First one, what is a Tychonaut? I get a feeling that at least one of you knows this. Yep. Cool. Right, Ian, because I think you're the one who doesn't know, or might not know. <laughs> is it a, an astronaut from China? It is. It's the Chinese word for astronaut. Absolutely. It is the name that the Chinese give uh, to their astronauts. Now, why might I be asking you about that at this time? 
because of the first mission to Tiangong 2. Yes, absolutely right. Um, since our last podcast, China sent two astronauts, or Taikonauts, up to the Vince Orbital Space Lab for 30 days. Um, as Ezzy, you rightly say, it's called Tiangong 2, meaning Heavenly Palace 2 and was launched uh, in mid-September 2016. Now, the two astronauts are going to spend their time up there performing experiments, which includes uh, kind of physiological tests on themselves and um, horticultural tests, so growing cress, but also growing rice. Okay. Now, I didn't know this. I didn't know going to grow rice, but apparently rice takes four to five months to grow. Well, so really? I'm assuming it's going to be um, just germinating. Yeah, some seeds. I think they're, they're planning on unless they're leaving it up there. I don't I know. I think they're leaving it up there. They're planning. It's not going to be a permanently inhabited place like um, the ISS, purely because it's only about sort of ten meters long. <laughs> uh, yes. They call it pa- a palace. Not really palatial. Um, so, but they are planning on having. Uh, I think this mission's thirty-three days. They're going to have more long-term missions going up there as well. Um, it's not designed to be a permanent. Habitat, but it is going to be up there for at least a couple of years. Quite right. It's kind of a um, a Skylab equivalent. It's yep. a single module. It's not going to change. Um, but all of this work, this is in preparation for the launch of the first component of a long-term modular space station, um, which I forget the Chinese name of, but it means Harmony of the Heavens. Okay. Because there's going to be three Tiangong modules, mm-hmm. um, which is going to launch in the mid-2020s, I think it is. That's what... Uh, the, that, that's kind of the, the best estimate that we have because um, China d- does does play their cards to the, close to their chest when it comes to their space plans. And also, the launches of all of these um, space labs, they've actually been slipping. Mm. So 2020s, maybe end of 2020s, perhaps. That always happens with space missions, though. It's kind of always add on an extra couple of years because that's how long it will actually be. <laughs> oh, precisely. Do we, do we know whether or not that would be like a uh, collaborative... Um, space station or whether that would only be uh, manned by by um, Taikonauts? It's been developed entirely by China because my understanding is it's come out of the fact they're not involved with the ISS. Yeah. Mm. But, I, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting to keep an eye on what um, Tiangong 2 evolves into because the ISS is running up to 2020, I think, and then it's... it's uh, I think it's, it's funded up to 2020, um, they are hoping to extend it as far as 2024. Potentially could get up to 28, but that's going to be pushing um, how long they think it can last, and they're, they're hoping to get something else together by then. As long as the funding up to 2028 might be problematic, are you talking about the integrity of the physical space station? Um, a little of both. Um, it's It's was designed to be a, te- a long-term but temporary station. It wasn't designed to last for centuries. Um, but the space agencies, they build things to last. You know, Hubble was only supposed to be going for a couple of years, and it's, what, 25, 27 now? It's past 25, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and Voyager, again, those ones, they've been going for decades. So so they can, they're not going to make it run any longer than is safe, Oh, yeah, of course. But they are beginning to, apparently the stations are beginning to feel their age and, you know, stuff does break on them. And, and yeah, so they, sure. they want to make sure that they're not putting their astronauts and cosmonauts in danger. Because potentially we could get to a point where the only space station is this Chinese mm-hmm. one, yeah. which would be, well, interesting to keep an eye on. Um, your bonus question for this is obviously the astronauts have gone on their 30-day mission to Tiangong 2. What happened to Tiangong 1? 
Right. Ian's shaking his head. Yeah, no idea. <clears throat> okay. It's up for grabs, as. So, um, again, China hasn't officially stated this, but uh, people have been watching it, and it looks like it's out of control. Yes. Um, it was supposed to be deorbited after two years. Um, it looked like it went out of control after four. Um, and I think it's it's currently slated to burn up in the atmosphere t- sometime in 2017. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's still up there in space, but its orbit is decaying. It might not be under control. It's not really confirmed, is yeah. it? And uh, yeah, it will burn up. Mm-hmm. Right, you're... Second slash third question, depending on which way you're counting. <laughs> so, researchers at the University of Idaho have announced that the planet Uranus may have two more moons than uh, we thought. Where did the data they used to reach this conclusion come from? And there's a reason I'm asking that, but it will become apparent in a moment. Now understanding why you ask for names for moons. Um... <laughs> All right, go. Uh, Voyager 2. That is right. Yeah. I, I remembered it was a Voyager. I couldn't remember which one. So, the... Yeah, you're right. The data came from Voyager 2 spacecraft. Why I wanted to kind of mention that is that this discovery comes from images that are over 30 years old. Mm. So, it hasn't done anything new with Voyager 2. It hasn't sent new photos back from Uranus. It's just they've looked at the photos again and gone, oh, I found something new. So, the moons haven't been seen directly. The moons, which uh, don't have names but are unofficially now Tintin and Snowy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was a reason. Um, So they haven't been seen directly, but their presence has been inferred from disturbances seen in two of the edges of the rings, um, which resemble waves. So they believe these disturbances have been caused by two moons that are passing on the outside of the rings and causing these undulations by the effect of their own gravity. And if they exist, they would be the closest moons... um, that known to exist around the planet because they've been found on the alpha and beta rings. Mm. Now, perhaps irritatingly, they haven't been able to confirm their presence visually, mm. which suggests they might be tiny, and we're talking 4 to 14 kilometres in diameter. Mm. Yeah. So let's assume one of those, so you had a little Earth that was 4 kilometres, you could run around it in about an hour hmm. at a slow pace. Yeah. Um, but this is really exciting because it suggests a solution to the Uranus narrow ring problem. Have you heard of that? Yeah, it's like basically why, why it's, why are its rings so so narrow and thin? And they yeah. think it could be the orbital effect of the, the moons kind of keeping it in line, keeping it in check. Yeah, but that, that's the thing. You'd think that was true, except they haven't been able to find any of the moons. They only found there's only one pair of Shepherd moons that are known about, and those are Cordelia and Ophelia, which are around the Epsilon ring. But if all these teeny weeny moons exist, then that could explain it away. Ah, If they find these two, and then there's potentially more, that could explain away how these narrow... Because Saturn's rings, comparatively, are humongous. But why Uranus's uh, rings are so inexplicably narrow has been an annoyance for astronomers (laughs) for a very long time. Um, Your bonus question at this point is about Voyager again. Which of the Voyager probes has passed through the outer boundary of our solar system and entered interstellar space? Go. It's 50 50, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Is it Voyager 1? It is. Because that was the, because it only went to Jupiter and Saturn and then it just kind of. Yeah, it, it got on its way without bothering to stop and yeah, learn about the ice giants. Yeah. <laughs> it always confuses me, though, because two launched before one in order to be able to do that orbit and that just 
No. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be honest. I, I didn't write anything down in that time, so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be honest. Did you write anything down? It no. was a choice of one or two. Yeah. <laughs> I knew, I knew, but Ayers answered before I could do anything. <laughs> yeah, I I'm mean, to be honest, I can count down. This <laughs> <laughs> is right. Uh, it's Voyager One to turn twenty twelve. Um, Voyager Two is currently in the Helio Sheaf, which is the outermost region of the Sun's influence, uh, with no exact date on when it might reach interstellar space beyond a few years' time. So, your last main question is about Sharon, Charon, Karen. One of those names, <laughs> the largest moon of the dwarf planet Pluto, has a red stain on its north and south poles. Scientists now think they know why. So, what is the reason? There we go. Come on, Todd. Give you time to write it down this time. No, I have absolutely no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Um, so the the red is a substance called tholin, tholins, um, which is a kind of uh, organic compound. But it started life as methane um, around Pluto, and then the methane escaped Pluto, but then got recaught by Car- Charon, Car- that, that, ah. that moon. <laughs> um, and because the the surface was so cold, the second that it touched down, it froze, and the sun's light converted it into this sort of ready substance that you see. Cool. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you pretty much explained it all. <laughs> I don't need to do this, but you could just do it for me. So, yeah, methane from Pluto's atmosphere that's been irradiated, basically. Um, you know, the way this would work is Pluto lost those methane molecules. As you say, it went to the surface, froze, sublimated, mm. left behind a hydrocarbon, irradiated, turned red, and you're yes. right, it is a folin. So, your bonus question then is... Why did this red stain only appear on the poles? Um. <laughs> um. Well, I just thought that was probably because it was it was cold enough there for that to happen. Yeah, I was thinking because of of the seasons um, on the the moon that it might have been a bit colder on the poles. You are right. You're very right. And this is the thing: it only happens on one pole at a time mm. because of that. So. Um, the poles are the only place where the moon gets cold enough for the methane to freeze, and that's obviously only the winter pole at any one time. Mm-hmm. Um, and bearing in mind that Pluto has a 248-year orbit, um, winter does go on a little while. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, winter is coming, still coming, still coming. <laughs> Basically, yes. Um, Ian, you've um, been annihilated here. Have I? Yeah, six to three. Oh. I was, oh, okay. It's almost like I'm a news editor. <laughs> <laughs> I was keeping score and I thought it was only 4-3, but no, never mind, that's fine. <laughs> no, 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 it was definitely six. Um, yeah, fair play. Is. You write the news for the website, though. Yeah, well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Homework for Ian. Um, right, we're going to take a break from this, and we're going to leave you in the capable hands of the Sky Night TV show's Pete Lawrence, who's going to tell us why you should take a careful look at November's full moon. The next full moon occurs at 1353 UT on the 14th of November. And there's nothing special about that, of course. Most months get their own full moon. But what is slightly unusual is the fact that this particular full moon occurs just a couple of hours after the moon reaches a point in its orbit known as perigee. Now, perigee is a term used to describe when an object in orbit around the Earth reaches a position where the distance between it and the Earth are minimised. 
So the consequence of this, of course, is that if you go outside and you have a look at the full moon on the 14th of November, it will look slightly larger than it has done at any other point throughout the year when it's been at its full phase. Now, you have to take that with a pinch of salt slightly because the apparent diameter of the moon will be tiny compared, or the difference will be tiny compared to the full moon which occurred in October and the full moon which is due to occur in December. Now, the actual apparent size will be around about 34 and a half arc minutes. Compare that with the apparent size of the moon when it's next at apogee and full. That occurs sort of around May and June of 2017. Now, at that time, the moon's apparent diameter will be slightly less than 30 arc minutes across. So you see there is a difference there between 30 arc minutes and 34 and a half arc minutes. But the, as I say, the difference between the full moon on the 14th of November and the ones which occurred in October of this year and the one that's due to occur in December will be pretty marginal. Now, the technical term for when you get three celestial objects lined up, and that's what happens when you've got a full moon, of course, you've got the sun, the earth and the moon in alignment, is syzygy. So this particular full moon is known as a perigee syzygy full moon. Now, are there any interesting things you can do to show this particular uh, phenomenon? Well, yes, there are. If you're an imager, you can go outside and you can take a photograph of the full moon and make a record of the kit which you've used to take the photograph. So if you've got a, a DSLR, for example, you've stuck it in the back of a telescope, make a note of which telescope you've used and whether you've used any optical amplifiers, barlows, etc., and take a photograph of the full disk of the moon. Then when we go into next year, around May and June, take another photograph of the full moon which occurs at that time using the same setup and then compare the apparent diameters of the moon you've caught with your camera. And you'll see that there is quite a noticeable difference between them. So that's one thing you can do. If you're not an imager and you just want to go out and enjoy the full moon, it's quite interesting to stare at it and try and work out what the smallest features are that you can see. Now, when you look at the, the face of the moon, it's very familiar to us because that's the same face that always points towards us, of course. And what you can see are the dark seas or the mariah on the moon's surface, and you can pick those out fairly well. One very a uh, noticeable one, which is actually on the, as we're looking at it from the United Kingdom, on the right-hand edge of the moon, that's actually close to the eastern limb of the moon, is Mare Crisium, which looks to us like a dark oval. See if you can pick that one out. On the other side of the moon, you've got Grimaldi, which is a tiny, tiny region if you're trying to see it with the naked eye. And I'm not sure you can actually pick that out, but it's worth going out there and having a look. If you see any photographs of the full moon, you often see the that very, very impressive ray crater called Tycho, which is in the southern part of the moon. That's bright, and it's got these incredible rays which emanate out from it. So can you pick up, using just your eyes, any hint of that arrangement on the southern part of the moon? I have tried in the past, and I'm not absolutely sure that I've failed, but I'm not absolutely sure that I've succeeded either. So it's worth going out and just having a go. 
But whatever happens, the moon will dominate the central part of November. And unfortunately, that will mean bad news for the annual Leonid meteor display, which is set to reach its peak on the 17th of November. Can't do anything about that, so just go outside and enjoy that particular full moon. And just as a matter of interest, this will be the largest full moon we've had since the 26th of January 1948. Okay, so our interview this episode uh, all began with uh, a book that landed on our desks uh, by Margot Lee Shetterly, which was released in September, um, about NASA's human computers. It's called uh, Hidden Figures, and it's specifically the story of the um, female African-American engineers who kind of did the behind-the-scenes calculations that enabled NASA to take part in the space race. I spoke to Dr. Christine Darden, an aeronautics engineer uh, who worked at NASA in the 1960s, and she was part of the uh, human computer program. So I, I spoke to her about her time in NASA and uh, what it was like for a young African-American woman to seek a career in science in the 1960s, and uh, started off by asking her how she came to work for NASA. I originally taught school uh, for two years before I uh, went back to school to get a master's degree in applied mathematics. And when I completed my degree in applied mathematics, I I applied at NASA. I think they had just been to the school recruiting, and I went to the placement office, and they said NASA was here yesterday. And so she asked me to fill out a form and send it. She would send it in. And I applied to a couple of uh, colleges also at the same time. And um actually got offers from all three and decided to go with NASA. And uh, so that's actually how I got there. When you, when you worked at NASA, you, you were one of the so-called human computers. I was wondering if, if you could tell us exactly who were the human computers and what was their role? Okay. Uh, the, the human computers were generally women, uh, and they actually started, I think, back in the well, maybe in the 1930s, but certainly in the early 40s, uh, who were hired to do the mathematical calculations of uh, equations that the engineers worked with. Once they had their equations, um, they would often sit down with a mechanical calculator and large spreadsheets and uh, calculate the dependent variables uh, based on what the independent variables were in the equations. And the engineers would use these certainly for their analysis and for their technical reports. Uh, the women also actually created the figures. This was, of course, before the computers were there. The mechanical computers were there to draw figures and label figures and things like that. So there were actually women in the computer offices who created the figures and diagrams for technical reports that NASA put out. Um, there were there were films that were created in the wind tunnels that generated data for the research also. And uh, so some of the women actually went uh, down to the tunnel area and read the key data points off the film for the analysis that the, that the engineers were doing. So there was a variety of work that was done. Um, now, I was hired about 20 years later. I was hired about two years before they walked on the moon. And uh, so I had actually 
computers were coming into NASA by then, and uh, I had actually had a little training in programming before I came. And so I um, started doing more of writing computer programs for engineers uh, to bring into the room. They would often derive the equations that they wanted solved, and they would just bring them in and say, would you write a computer program for this uh, to give me the uh, dependent variables that I would you know, need to know? And so I did mostly that when I was in the, um, in the computer group. I was there um, for about five years. The computer section had been a segregated section uh, before I was there, So I actually worked with some of the ladies who had worked in the segregated computer group, but I never did. The the office was uh, mixed when I I was hired, and uh, so I never experienced that aspect of the computer group. Uh, And... um, so that was that was sort of my experience working there with mostly working on computer programs that engineers brought into the office to be solved. And I, I have to ask you really because it's it's the subject of um, uh, Margot Lee Shetterly's book. But even though you weren't working in a, um, a segregated environment, what was it like for a young uh, African American woman in the nineteen sixties to to try and and, and uh, pursue a, a career in science? Uh, well, one of the first things that happened to me was um, when I when I went off to college. I told my father that I wanted to major in general studies, which meant I would not take the education courses to allow me to be a teacher. And he he told me that if he was going to send me to college, I had to take education. I had to get a teacher certificate because he wanted me to be able to get a job when I got out. And um, so that is that's why I went into teacher education because because there were not very many jobs for African American women. Uh, teachers, nurses, secretaries were about the extent, unless you worked in somebody's kitchen, you know, or in their home as sort of a personal servant. And um, so I, that's of course why I taught for two years. I didn't get any other jobs, so I took a job as a teacher for two years. And um, once I got to NASA, I really didn't know what the engineers did until I really got there and and saw them what they brought into the office. And I did not really understand the problems that they were working on because they often didn't share uh, uh, to a great depth what they were working on. They would just bring the equations. So um, I uh, once I really found out how they were working and I, my really, my love and my preparation and everything, um, in the physical sciences and and applied mathematics, I sort of thought, gee, I could be doing what they're doing and, uh, started to actually, uh, ask about, you know, well, could I, could I transfer out of the computer section, you know, to an engineering section or could I go to school and take more engineering classes so I could do that. And um, so so the the outside atmosphere was certainly difficult as far as the jobs being open, and it was a good job. Even in the computer pool, it was a good job to have at the time for an African-American woman. Mm. And I, I, I suppose it's, it's safe to say that um, 
without the work of you and your colleagues, we may never have have landed humans on the moon or, or you know, uh, the successes enjoyed by NASA in the 60s and 70s, but probably wouldn't have wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for for people like yourself and your colleagues. Uh, well, I did not do very much in preparing for the moon. My The section that I went to work in was called reentry physics, and they did do all of the calculations for the Apollo vehicle to reenter the atmosphere. Uh, that was, I was more in a sort of a hypersonic atmospheric flow area. And so uh, all of the problems that a vehicle encounters coming into the atmosphere, the angle that it has to come in, the temperatures that it encounters when it comes back in the atmosphere. They had done all of that work for the Apollo before I got there. And so, you know, they were they were really getting ready to fly by the time I got there. But certainly the, the ladies that were there in the 40s and 50s uh, were certainly, well, the, the late 50s, I guess, and 60s after it became NASA, uh, Certainly those ladies, and certainly Katherine Johnson, who worked in the flight uh, controls area, who actually calculated some of the trajectories. Um, yeah, she, she played a great role in getting man to the moon and having them trust the numbers that, they, that would get them to the, to the moon. Yes, I, I mean, I, I think um, books like this and uh, s- stories like this really have a lot to teach us. That's absolutely true, and we are continually trying to get our young girls to go into science. We we still have a difficulty, uh, I think, encouraging them to do that. But um, uh, and we we strive to we strive to get make them get prepared uh, in in doing so. It was an extremely rewarding career, and one in which, and I often tell students when I talk to them. It was it was a job in which you were excited to get up and go to work every day. Uh, I didn't do one thing all the time. I, you know, I um, I wrote papers. I gave papers. I did experimental tests. I wrote computer programs. I uh, gave. I advocated for programs and for money for the programs. And so every day was different. And every day, you know, brought on new challenges and new satisfactions and everything and so it's it's uh I try to ex- convey that to the young people also that often in these careers you 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 just it's um it's 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 a passion within you that you know of the work you are doing and it is so great and it's challenging and it's absolutely not boring and if you see your research and work come to fruition it is absolutely exhilarating So all that's left is for us to tell you about what's coming up in the November issue of BBC Sky Night magazine. We'll be looking at how scientists hope to tackle one of the most exciting questions in the solar system at the moment, which is, is there life on Europa? After new images revealed, um, even more plumes coming out of it. We will be explaining how astronomers can map the Milky Way without actually leaving it, because of course we can't. And that's what you wrote, isn't it, Ezzy? Yes, it is. Um, so it's surprisingly difficult that even though the Milky Way is the galaxy that we are closest to being in it, um, this is unfortunately makes it quite problematic to map because imagine you were sitting in your house or you can see around you is the walls of your living room. 
what does the rest of your house look like? Or indeed the outside of your house. Or the outside of your house, all of these kinds of things. And and so it's it's about looking into that question of how do they work out what our home galaxy looks like considering we're sat inside it. Plus, we will be revealing how you can star hop around the clusters and globules of another galaxy, our neighbour M31, in what is our first extragalactic astronomy tour. Nice. And also, I need to tell you about our monthly sky guide, new and improved with extra sections. Mm, it's very shiny looking. Very shiny looking. <laughs> um, new sections in there. We are doing a star of the month feature, which covers variable and multiple stars. We have got an in-depth piece on comets, meteors, or asteroids. We have a new challenge every month. Mm-hmm. So in case you were, uh, you know... You don't just want to see, you want to test yourself. You can do that as well. And we've also introduced a little family stargazing section. So if you have little ones and you want to show them night sky, we can point out easy targets and um, fun facts to capture their imaginations. Plus, we've got our regular bonus content. Yeah, a bit of a 2016 retrospective. Uh, this this issue's bonus content, I spoke to David Parker, who's Director of Human Space Flight and Robotic Exploration at ESA, um, just kind of discussing how the UK has contributed to space flight and exploration uh, over the year. Brilliant. BBC Sky Night magazine is available in print and several digital formats. Find out more at skynightmagazine.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. This has been Radio Astronomy. We have been BBC Sky Night magazine and we'll be back in a month's time.